I'm a damn good reader of people. My role in my family was the pleaser. I didn't choose this, by the way. You don't choose the role you have in your family. It chooses you. I was the pleaser, so I was the one that needed to kind of see forward, even if it was 15 seconds or five minutes, to see how things were going to happen and what I needed to do. And if there was a way that I could calm things down or potentially solve problems earlier. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt-sized company, from small 16 employees to extra-large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun about all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Harry S. Campbell. Harry has 26-plus years' experience in corporate America and has been the president of two Fortune 500 companies, co-owner of an award-winning small business, and CEO board member of an internet startup. He is the author of three books and is currently in high demand as motivational speaker and a developer of talent at all levels in any organization. You can find out more about Harry at harryscampbell.com. Now let's listen as Jeff talks to Harry. Harry Campbell, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm uh, jacked up to be here. Yeah, so Harry and I have known each other. Uh, we were just uh, talking before we went on air live, or at least being recorded. And uh, we've uh, this year will be 30 years, which is incredible. We were both, what, 16? I was 16. You were 15. Um, I had hair. <laughs> I had hair. Um, no, I, I'm very excited about this. I, you know, I've probably have told you this in the past over a, a cup of coffee or a beer, but I mean, I consider you a mentor of mine. And, you know, just in, you know, knowing you and preparing for this podcast. I, I really think you, uh, two things. One, we have very parallel lives a little bit. Uh, you know, we. Uh, I think you, your kids were four and six when you got divorced and you were a single dad and just let the lost your job. And I had a, my kids were eight and 10, you know, similar situation. Uh, and I really think that just the parallels in, in our leadership philosophy, I mean, you did it at, you know, stratospheric levels, as uh, Bob Berg would say. Um, <laughs> but you know just you know every time you say something and I, i'll go god it's just exactly how i feel about things and the other thing which i really admired about you so i started my career in at&t in 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 application development i was a software engineer but at&t at the time was you know it was the big at&t one million plus employees before everything you know, got disaggregated and and broken off uh, in one one of 1984. So, um, you know, when I worked there, it was like you know people had been there like 25 years, 22 years, 29 years, 31 years. Like they knew to the day when they were going to retire. You know, like and as we talked about, 
previously, like, I think we were the first generation to go through, like, we knew we didn't have a job for life at the same company. So uh, safe to say that probably. But the one thing about AT&T was very kind of collegial, like people got along, there wasn't any sense of, you know, kind of territorial type A personalities. And then when I went to Sprint, um, which I went there probably three or four years before you did. I mean, I, it was crazy. Like it was all these type A personalities running around and who could, you know, you could build bigger, you know, fiefdoms and all this stuff. And, you know, we, we always called, or I never did, but we always called business partners like ad agencies or our loyalty marketing program, uh, partner vendors i'm like vendors are the ones that supply your paper towels in the bathroom like these are strategic partners we can't treat them like we're not we just treated them poorly but long intro to you were the first person that i thought oh my god you are authentic and you're you care about people and you're a nice guy a nice person which i would i just and you were you know you're funny it was it was you you're right. You know, whoever has that quote, you know, be you, everybody else has already taken. But I, that's the first time I saw somebody at a really, you know, a higher level than me. I think I was a group manager probably when you started. I was like, God, this guy, I love this guy. You know, I'm like, <laughs> uh, you know, so I I, I appreciate, uh, you know, I don't know if, I, like I said, if I told you, you you've been a mentor of mine, but um definitely and you know spending time with you is uh, always a learning experience and i come away smarter so thank you for well, that let me let me give you a little perspective on that first of all um, i'm not i wouldn't say i'm stunned that you said that but i'm flattered is what i would say and um i don't try to do that that's just the uh way my um operating style my brand my personality that's the way i play it um authentic is me my books that I've written are about being being real, and I pride myself in that because I think that goes a long way uh, toward being more productive as a team. But the reason why I had a lot of these attributes was because I grew up at Procter & Gamble, and I spent the first seven years of my career in marketing. They, they called it brand management, but it's the same thing. You're general managing the brand, but you're spending the marketing dollars. And p is an amazing environment um, incredibly smart people that are very driven, but it's not competitive. It's actually collegial. And that is very hard to do to have that many alpha uh, males and females under the same roof, but still get along, share each other's ideas, sometimes copy each other's ideas with, with permission. And um, I, I learned to operate that way. And I loved it. When I came to Sprint, it wasn't that way. It was a bit of a Somalian warlords <laughs> and um, not nearly as organized. But in reality, what I did was I decided I wasn't going to continue to be me the way I am. And I didn't stand out at PNG. I don't mean that in a bad way. I just was relatively similar to a lot of people that were there. And at Sprint, I did stand out. And I think that made a difference in my career. Yeah, 100%. Um so I like to start with like two questions. I, I'm, I ask every guest, you and I know each other, but you know, since it's Zoom, I see you have your Head for the Cure uh, Foundation shirt on, but what are you wearing uh, underneath the desk? <laughs> I've got uh, sweats on and, and uh, really old running shoes. Perfect. Thank. Th those weren't the shoes you set the Vanderbilt uh, 10K record, uh, is it? 
Uh, no, those are long gone, but uh, thanks for reminding me that I used to be a runner. So the second question, um, I just like, you know, people's childhood childhood shapes them. And we're not going to get into like all the stuff in childhood. But like what did when you growing up, what did you want to be? You know, what like when, I, when you became an adult, what was your kind of what did you want to be? Um, I, I have a very straightforward answer for this. And you're probably going to be surprised is uh, I had no idea and I never paid attention to it. I grew up in a, a alcoholic house, and so planning was not something I did. And as a result of that, that leads me straight back to the answer that I just gave you. What I decided was I was going to take today and try to figure out how I was going to do as well as I could with it. Um, the other thing I do is I pride myself on treating people extraordinarily well. Because I started at PNG, I learned that... Uh, I could run stuff and I became someone who ran things and I was a fixer. And the combination of those led me to, uh, I would say it was a very crooked path, but it was always in a positive direction about running things, whether it was uh, running a brand or a business for Procter & Gamble. I was the brand manager of Metamucil. I was Mr. Happy Bowel and man, did I make hay with that? I ran some things at Sprint, some small little businesses. I left Sprint and I ran a, a sports marketing agency, came back to Sprint uh, after going into the dot-com world for a little while and running something there. I came back to Sprint, ran divisions. And so what I really did was pride myself on figuring out how I could make an impact by running things better than they were being run. A lot of times they were broken and needed to be fixed. That's fine. So I didn't really think about what I wanted to be. What I What I really focused on was what I was good at. And what I really enjoyed doing, and my theory was that would lead me good places, and I was very fortunate that I was right. Yeah, interesting. So I I have a firm belief, and I have no quantitative data for it, but you know, most eighteen year olds when they go into college have no idea what they want to do. I mean, I would say at least ninety five percent. You know what they want. You know, unless you want to be a nurse, you know, you're on a strict path, or a doctor, uh, you know, engineer, whatever. But I I think most people, but so you very interesting. Uh, went to Vanderbilt and was an East Asian history major. So like, I get picking something, you know, like a major. Like I don't know what I want to do, but like, what led you to pick that major? It was the most popular uh, major in the United States. That I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Were there um, many females? Happened. A lot of female. Majors. No, here, here's what happened. And and much like uh, many of the stories I tell, it, simplicity is there. I went to Vanderbilt and I went to the liberal arts program. So that's the first thing should tell you that I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, my father was a theology professor. My mom was a Latin teacher. So we had uh, a whole lot of thinking and discussing and problem solving going on in our house but that doesn't lead you on a career path. I decided I wanted to be a history major because I absolutely loved the subject. There were too many people that were US history majors, so I decided to do uh, take a little right-hand turn and become an East Asian history major. Now, I did double major in economics, so that was kind of real, but when you're in the liberal arts program, economics uh, doesn't exactly lead you to get a job. So my senior year, I realized I was not going to be hired by anybody to do anything. 
And um, I hurriedly put together my application to go to business school and get an MBA because if I didn't, I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. So I went straight through 83 undergrad, 85 MBA. And I honestly believe that if it wasn't for going to get an MBA, I would have been jobless and Lord know what's path. Lord knows what path that would have gone down. But I came out then with I decided to be a marketing major in the MBA program at uh, Indiana is where I went after Vanderbilt. And Procter and Gamble found me, decided they liked me, gave me a chance, and my my path started forming and started becoming more real when I left my MBA program and went to PG and marketing. Is there uh, anything you used professionally um, that you learned as being an East Asian history major? Gosh, you'd think I'd come up with one. Um, <laughs> here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to cheat a little bit, okay? I'm going to say specifically no, but liberal arts majors tend to have blue book tests and not uh, – I, I stayed away from the stems – you get broad questions that you need to sort through and you need to problem solve and then you need to answer them. So what I would say is um, my major at Vanderbilt, more than anything, taught me how to think and how to solve problems. How about that for an answer? God, I love that, it. Feels, that feels good. I love it. So uh, I get uh, uh, I think, you know, of uh, Dave Patrick. And so Dave teaches at UMKC and uh, KU. So some, sometimes I guess lecture for him as well as another friend at Rockhurst. Um, the, when they go into Q and A uh, with the students, they ask almost. Well, it, it's a hundred percent of the time I get this question. You know, should I get my MBA? So I, I would like to hear your answer to that question. I'm just curious that you went right from college, and, and I understand why you did it. But what do you think today in today's world? I have a very straightforward answer for that. Um, it completely depends on the individual. I've already explained why it was almost critical that I did it because it opened up my eyes to career paths that I didn't have as a liberal arts major. So the answer is yes. Should someone go directly from undergrad to grad? I think not. I did it. And by the time I graduated in 85 and maybe even by 86 or 87, MBA programs were requiring work experience, and they probably do the same thing now, maybe out of a class of 300 that comes as, as an entering MBA class, a handful will have come from undergrad, and they will have already started a software business, and they have charitable work, so they've got something special about them. So I would say everybody's different, and everybody needs something different from the experience. I treated it like years five and six of college. That is not the best experience you can get from an MBA program. It's better if you've worked four or five years, you were an accountant, and I'm making this up, and you want to change career paths. Maybe you want to go into finance, but you want to be in investment banking. One of the best ways to do that is to go back and get a degree like that because you can be around other people that have done similar things. It gives you more contacts. You got a, uh, you probably have an incredible placement program. You got internship opportunities. So it really gives you an opportunity to branch out. And so I'm a huge fan of the MBA degree by itself, but I think it needs to be modified how you approach it, depending on the person. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, it's it's interesting. I, I, it, it absolutely does depend. I just think, uh, it, I think 
again, my opinion, your mileage may vary, but I think in the eighties, it was, it was looked at as more prominent to have that, those three letters, but I don't know. That's just my, and I did, I went, I, I did hire on AT&T and I went right to, um, work there and then but they and they paid for my mba so i went at night so t- i just it took me three years to get it which i was in no hurry but they paid for the whole thing and i you know and i got it but i think it meant more than i don't know um, um i i never really thought of it this way before but uh this is off right off the top of my head one of the reasons why i think it's not as important today is because there are more opportunities to be involved as starting a business or joining a three-person business and being in the world of entrepreneurship. And in reality, I think you can get an MBA by trying to run a uh, uh, a startup business or being involved as a founder just as easily. You may end up going back and getting an MBA later. Don't know. Depends on the trajectory of the business. But that is one of those things that can that is much more available in the last 10 years than ever was before. And I think that has um, led to less people thinking they need an MBA. So in, in terms of your career, uh, Harry, so P&G, I mean, um, and you were based in Cincinnati where the headquarters is? Yeah. Correct. So P&G, I mean, like top companies to work for. Did you develop some kind of career strategy? Because obviously, you know, you're your arc was phenomenal sprint and, and then leader, you know, going out on your own uh, with MAI in in the sports marketing world, uh, playing in the internet, uh, you know, boom and bust in the late nineties, early two thousands at a startup uh, company. Uh, And then coming back to sprint uh, having, you know, huge leadership P and L responsibilities um, at both the sprint and embark uh like did you have a plan i didn't what i did was um i took advantage of procter and gamble just like they uh took advantage of me and i mean that in a good way those are not uh, pejorative words i didn't really know much about business with uh, teachers for parents and as a liberal arts major i had a couple years of an mba but not much business experience and PNG loves people that don't know how to to run a business because what they're willing to do is they're they're willing to train you on their way of doing it. And I drank it up. I loved it. I gave them a lot back because I did very well with the business and with the people. But at the end of the day, it was one of those extraordinary give and takes that worked. Did I have a plan? No. But I also did realize that there was a good chance that somewhere probably five to 10 years down the line turned out to be seven, I was going to leave P&G. And the the statement I would make, Jeff, which is um, pretty prophetic, is you only leave a place like P&G once. You need to leave it really well. You need to take advantage of your opportunity and land something that uh, is, is very forward-looking and logical with regard to your potential success for later. And that's what happened with me with Sprint. Yeah, interesting. So you had no real plan. You know, you you're trying you, not trying. You are yourself, right? You you're authentic. You're phenomenal at it. But how does that? You know, a lot of people like in 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 leadership roles like you've had, they manage up so well that and that's why they progress through the organization. But I would say, you know, 
a lot of you know your talks and uh, when you give uh, speeches and all that it's almost you always talk about leadership i'll call it leadership down because you don't manage people like i mean and that's not in a bad way i mean like you build bonds with every person at every level of the organization but talk a little bit about you know did you manage up you know i i know you tell the story about hesse hesse let me be me and i refer to dan hesse former ceo of sprint that harry uh, reported directly to but talk a little bit about that um sure a couple of things that uh, i scribbled down while you were um talking there first of all i had a couple of traits that came to me as a result of my childhood in that mattered to me and that um, I did not go unnoticed because I used them. For example, um, I'm a damn good reader of people. My role in my family was the pleaser. And so one of the skills, I didn't choose this, by the way. You don't choose the role you have in your family. It chooses you. I was the pleaser. So I was the one that needed to kind of see forward, even if it was 15 seconds or five minutes to see how things were going to happen and what what I needed to do. And if there was a way that I could calm things down or uh, um, potentially solve problems earlier. So I became a reader of people that that served me very well as I move forward, coming into a room where let's say you're going to present to a board and you can read the room quickly. That's important. And I realized I could and I used that to my advantage. Um, the other thing that you talked about, which I loved, um, had to do with uh, servant leadership. I rarely use that term in my speeches, and that was that's choiceful. I love servant leadership, believe in it, and operate with it, which really what that says is, as the leader, it is your job to make the people that work in your org to make their job easier, not vice versa. It's not their job to serve you. It's the opposite. It's the inverted pyramid. I learned that directly from Sam Walton. I was fortunate enough to be chosen with Procter & Gamble for a two-and-a-half-year assignment in Northwest Arkansas. I got a chance to listen to and be around Sam Walton, and he was a huge servant leadership fan. I had heard of it. I kind of operated with it, but I didn't internalize it until I saw him do that. And then I realized if I do that, then I have a chance to be more successful, not just because people will like me. That was an, That was important to me because as a pleaser, I want people to like me. But that wasn't the reason why it wins. It wins is the, because people want to work in your organization if you treat them well. You give them, you treat them like an adult. You give them the tools to do the job, and you make them feel connected to something bigger than themselves. And if you don't overthink your role as a leader, don't use your positional power in inappropriate ways, better people want to join. Then when you have an opening, what happens is, Jeff, the line is really long and you get to choose the best person. And then that what that does is that leads to better business results. And then the next time you have an opening, you get to choose a great person. And then it spirals upward in a way that is um, simple, but sometimes hard to execute if you don't understand things like servant leadership and um, reading people and how important those are. Yeah. And I, I love the, um, you know, you're, you know, great people have worked for you. And so that's a, you know, yes, the line's long, but in the beginning, you probably had to find people to work under your leadership. And I think it was on Randy's pod, Randy Powell's podcast, Lessons in Leadership. Uh, you talked about, hey, if you only have 10 minutes with somebody, 
what are you going to, what are you going to talk to or talk about or have that person talk about in 10 minutes? So you decide you want to hire them. If you only have 10 minutes and I couldn't, I, I don't know if Randy just answered that or you did, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, uh, that, that's very easy. I'm going to try to figure out their story and their story could be something all the way back to high school and college, or it could be something that had to do with the job that they had, but it has to do with the differentiation about why they are, who they are, what drives them and what they're, what they're motivated by. And, um, I try to find a connection It may be a sports connection because I'm a geek about sports and that includes all sports except kind of hockey. I'm, I'm uh, a little bit, but baseball, basketball, football, golf, I follow, and I try to find out if somebody went to Auburn or they went to Michigan, I might talk about basketball or football or something with them to try to get a connection. And then I try to drill down and figure out the point of difference of the person. If you think about it, it's no different than marketing a product. If you're going to sell it, you got to get people to understand there's value, but also you have to make people understand what is the point of difference and the differentiation that you have about why you should choose me why me? And um, what I want to do when I have 10 minutes with someone is figure out their why and and why I should choose them. And it's their responsibility to meet me in the middle and try to, to convince me or give me what that point of difference is. I, don't make me do all the work. Make it uh, mutual. So you talk about, you know, you, you're pleased or you want people to like you. And I I would say I, I haven't I haven't met I, I I think I've I know one person that said they didn't like you. Like if I, I don't, I'm not going to name names. Who would that be? <laughs> but I I do have a question in that area. Like and again, it doesn't matter because everybody's not going to like you. It, 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 you know, you, you, when you have to when you're a leader, you have to make tough tough decisions. Everybody's not going to like you, and that's fine. But is there any like a, a personality attribute of somebody that doesn't like you? That doesn't. Um, I'm making this up, but you asked, so I can do that. <laughs> I would say that, that, um, I'm a bit on the humor side more than most people. And that includes even at serious times, I use humor to, uh, cut tension. And, um, there are people that don't appreciate the fact that I, I think most everything has a funny side to it. And I love it. And I used to worry about that a little bit because it rubs uh, some people the wrong way if they're a little more serious, I would say. But then I realized it's me. It's the way I want to operate and I'm authentic with it. So they're just going to have to deal with it or we'll part our ways. And And by the way, I have another thing that I do that some people don't like is I'm a prolific sharer. One of the things I realized when I had big jobs at Sprint and Embark was that a lot of times people need to know where I stood on an issue. And I got over that real quickly by basically sending my my distribution list and or my copy list on emails to more people than you can possibly imagine. And inevitably, I'd have one person on my lead team that that made them flinch because they were a little bit of an information hoarder. Because if you, the higher up in the organization, the more likely you have to have information that you don't necessarily want to share. I love to share it because I want decisions to be made fast. I want bad news to travel fast. I want people to know that I'm willing to engage with them on it if they want me to. If they don't, that's fine. But at the end of the day, what, what I really want is 
I, I want there to be no question where I stand so that if we can make a decision 30 minutes or three days quicker, let's go do it. So I uh, I remember you saying once that uh, I think it was an embark. You had three, four thousand people under you and you basically told any, anyone in your organization to email you if you had if they had anything they had a problem with or had something to share. And so you basically, you know, that's the kind of open door policy times infinity almost. Right. I mean, that's so I, I'm I'm just curious, like I love it. You know, how did you deal with the volume or was the volume so low because people were hesitant because you were the president or whatever? Uh, I, lo- I love this subject because I've uh, um, talked about it previously and it, this is very important to me. I did make that offer. I was a little worried, but not much that the volume would be high. The first week that that um, I put that offer out there out of, uh, I did have, I think, 4,000 people in my group. I got less than 20. I think I got 18 questions. And um, three of them were extraordinarily trivia, trivial. One person even asked me if there was a way that I could get the person next to him to stop chewing gum in the call center. <laughs> and what, one of my, just to give you some insight into that, I got that email. And somebody on my team was horrified by it and wanted to dress them down for wasting Harry's time with that. I said, whoa, whoa, stop. This was important to them, and they had the nerve to send it to me, so I'm going to answer the damn question. So we looked it up in the handbook, and it said that if you're on the phone, you can chew gum, but it has to be in between callers. And there there was actually words in the policy that handled the situation. So I sent it back to them and they said, thank you. And spread the word that no kidding, he was going to pay attention. In general, when you make available that kind of process, what's going to happen is almost nobody's going to take advantage of it, but they're all going to love the idea that they can if they want to or need to, or if there's a dire situation it opens up an avenue for them. So that was what I was doing. I was betting that human nature was going to say, they're not going to bother me. They don't want to, um, there's an occasional person that will, but they don't want to look like some fool by asking a silly question. But the idea that they can mattered deeply to them. So I think a, in any leadership uh, journey, right? You, so you're Mostly everybody starts out as an individual contributor, and then you, you know, get a team, and that team could be three people under you, four or five, whatever. But then when you start leading leaders to have people under them, it, you know, gets more complicated. So when you reach a role at Embark or, or wherever, 4,000 people, right? And you're, you know, the person on the phone in Orlando, Florida for you is you know whatever seven levels eight levels below you on the org chart not that we both don't believe in hierarchies yada yada but i mean you have org charts so like how do you um you know and i don't know if you've ever spent any time in any job of yours where you actually took customer calls outside of you know working with somebody when you're you know trying to learn but you know like you never did that job before you never ran a call center before how do you how do you build relationships at that level and how do you, and the second part of that question is 
since you never experienced that from a work, um, you know, you, you never did that work. How do you handle not being an expert in that area? Um, both these are very easy to answer. Uh, I've probably answered them out loud and or to myself uh, many, many times, and it's very straightforward. Um, I treat everybody as if they're my equal. Um, that sounds like BS. And the first time people hear it from me, they're like, yeah, right. Well, I will tell you, it doesn't matter to me whether you're a secretary, if there's a, such a term, or an admin assistant, or whether you're the president of uh, a partner company of mine, I'm going to treat you the same way. Now, we may have different, no, we will have different discussions, I get that, but at the end of the day, there is no reason for me to judge other people or to feel better than them. And this comes from growing up in an alcoholic family. You could say, what an advantage to have that point of view, because I don't have to try. It's what I do. And it's the way I learned over the first 18 years of my life. So that made it so that people felt very relaxed and comfortable around me. Then the other thing I would say is, I am the first person to tell you I have no idea what you're doing. I've never done it before. I have worked in a retail store and I've worked as a server. That's the closest I've come, but I've never worked in a call center. But I have devil jacked in a call center, which means I put the headphones on and listen to the person next to me. And I and I hear how they're solving problems and communicating. And then I have a discussion with them, not about the specifics of what they did with the customer, but about their problem solving communication skills, their empathy skills. And those are the things that I think I can bring. But I never make the mistake of thinking that I know more about that job than that person doing it. And it made it easier. And that comes back to positional power. I've talked about it previously. If you have the positional power, you can use it, but you should use it very, very carefully and deliberately. I'm going to give you one time a year you can use it. And when I say positional power, I mean, I'm the boss. Therefore, we're going to do this. That is not the way you're going to get things done in the long term, but sometimes you have to do it in the short term. And um, I don't do that with regard to jobs either. I say, wow, you did something interesting that I wouldn't have done if I'd have approached it, but I've never done your job. Therefore, tell me why you did it and explain to me. And that, by the way, makes people very, very feel very, very valued. Yeah, so two things from that story of yours. I, and I forgot about it until you said it. So you said that to me when you first started at Sprint. I I know I was an early morning person at Sprint. And I believe you were too, like 6 a.m. or whatever. We were in there early. And, you know, CSG advertising marketing was a very later arriving crowd. <laughs> so we were outliers in that, in that, um, in that arena. But um you said to me, I treat everyone the same from the security guard to, you know, Bill Esri, who was the CEO at the time at, at Sprint. So I I always, I remember that always. I, I occasionally I'll teach a, a short course for recent college graduates on how to get a job. And I tell them when they go in for an interview and as well as this should be your life philosophy, treat everyone the same. Because I don't know how many times I've, you know, brought in an interview candidate and they treated the you know the admin assistant poorly like you're not going to get hired you're, you're i don't even need to know anything else you know like i don't even need the interview you know most of the times i would find out afterwards but i would always ask how did that person treat you you know when he he or she came in the door 
were they responsive? They treat you with courtesy. And if they didn't, that person was not going to be part of the team. You know, Jeff, um, twice in my career, I've gotten specific feedback from administrative assistants, and they were about five years apart. And it was some of the most uh, glowing, happy moments of my entire life. And here's what happened. They both individually said roughly the same thing. They said, Harry, you treat me as well as the boss that's in that office in there. You treat me the same, that you give me the same kind of respect. You listen, you pay attention, you explain to me. Not everybody does that, and I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And I got that five years apart from two different people, and I thought, you know what? I don't try to do it. It's a way I was ingrained on how to approach people, but it mattered, and it made a point of difference for me. Yeah. One of the main things as a leader, you have to care for people. So if you, you know, and you just show you care, you know, by treating them with respect. Um, so the other story I have that I just remembered also is, you know, this is the days of conference calls. And I think I was, I needed something from you. So I, I went to your desk uh, office and I peeked my head in, you were kind of finishing up a call and you just, you know, you gave me the, Hey, wait a minute, you know, just wait right there signal with your finger and then <laughs> i walked in i either walked in or was on your uh front door your uh, office door i can't remember which one but it was like the last 20 years of final four <laughs> teams <laughs> i go here and this was before internet like you you know you weren't um you weren't looking this stuff up. I mean, like, yeah, you go, yeah, I was on a conference call. I got a little bored. So I put, I I'm like, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's very me. I got bored. I needed to do something. So I started writing down the all final four teams. This was pre-internet, pre-Google. Yeah. And I was pretty damn proud of it. I had a few blanks and that kind of irritated me, but um, I did darn well. I, I know it is incredible. Uh, I, another uh, little uh, behavior of yours, and I know people that know you and uh, meet face to face. And I have to share this because I just saw something on ESPN that reminded me of you. So, um, you know, we're meeting, you and I are sitting down for coffee, beer, whatever. Your leg is constantly shaking. I don't know which one it is, but so I'm watching Bill uh, Belichick interview Nick Saban. They were, they, I think they were on the Michigan staff together. They, they, they had a, so anyhow, both of them have their legs going during the interview. I'm like, oh my God, I got to tell Harry Campbell about this. And then, uh, cause you know, that's a trademark of yours, obviously. Let, uh, let me tell you how that translates a little bit. This is slightly off, but it's pretty close. Um, I, I don't like to waste my time at all. The, the it, it is the commodity that uh, um, is precious to me. So about, I'll exaggerate a little bit, but about every 10 minutes all day, I'm thinking, am I doing what I should be doing for the business and for myself and for my org and for my people? And if I'm sitting in a meeting where we're not being productive or it's not being run very well, my legs start shaking more and more and more and more. My team around me would start to realize, uh-oh, we're going to lose him pretty soon. He's going to he he'll he'll never be mean about it, but he's going to politely try to figure out how he gets somebody to interrupt the meeting and drag him out, or he's going to um, say that he forgot something and he's going to leave. So if we need him to sign something, we better get it front in front of him right now. And what what I like to do is say, 
I'm going to give you a whole bunch of time back because we're going to cut our meetings down in about half because we need to talk faster. <laughs> we need to discuss things. We need to get to the point quicker. And then we need to get on with it and get to the next meeting or decision point. And I think, you know, uh, I think you would agree with this. I think what we learned, the training at Sprint in terms of process and, uh, you know, we had the PAL back in the day for each meeting, the purpose, agenda, limits, I think was the L, uh, or limits logistics in terms of, you know, how much time. And it made people at least help them prepare because you had to have a PAL for each meeting. And a lot of things I learned from Sprint and, you know, we had the TQM, total quality management training I, I used for years. I still use today, which I thought the training there was phenomenal. Um, uh, a great book on meetings is uh, read this before your next meeting. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it's about 80 pages. Seth Godin promoted it or uh, blogged about it in one, his blog post years ago when that book came out, but it's a phenomenal book. It's, it's you know, cause most meetings don't need to occur, right? They're just updates. You know, you don't, you can send out a, a word document if you have an update on project now, you know, that's exactly I, right. I love and meetings where you brainstorm, you think, you you know, resolve problems, brainstorm, you know, new ideas, solutions. Those are great meetings, but you know, but uh, being in corporate America, it's uh, sometimes it's we get over meetinged. I would uh, implore upon my assistant Susan Everett, who was just an absolute gem. She stayed with me in a bunch of job moves, which uh, I think was more of a statement on her than me, but in a good way, and. Um, I would try to keep a third of my day uh, with as open. And that's not easy when you get a high up job in a big corporation because meetings tend to come flooding forward. But I would have quite a bit of time open and I would do something that uh, I saw Sam Walton do and I loved and I never heard of it before I met him. The MBWA, Management by Walking Around. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that was just precious time because then I'm meeting people. I'm asking them what they're working on. Is there any way I can help? I'm memorizing their name. I see it on their cube. And then I associate with uh, their their name with them, uh, directly with them. And I, I love doing that. And I came to to find that that was as productive as I could have it be, particularly because it made me happy. And it made other people realize that I was trying to stay engaged and trying to stay out of meetings, which is my goal in a lot of instances. So uh, what companies um, outside the ones you've worked for do you really admire? Wow, I love that. I have three that uh, come immediately to mind. Costco, Quick Trip. And then I'm going to flinch while I say the third one, which is Southwest Airlines. Um, I think they're either half or completely dropped off my list based on their problems they had over the holidays. So I'm going to focus on Quick Trip and Costco because I do love Southwest, but whoa, wow. Um, I think their lack of focus on technology crushed them. Their culture is awesome, but oops. The logistics no so let's let's go talk costco and quick trip the reason why i like those two is because they're in nothing industries costco is a concrete slab and they sell stuff off of it quick trip is a convenience store they're both extraordinarily good at doing what they do they, they're very profitable their cultures are awesome 
and they pride themselves on treating their people extraordinarily well, and it comes through. And I love to see things that can be surprising. Do you really believe that Quick Trip can make a convenience store a destination for people from a career standpoint? Well, they do it. Costco does the same thing. The people that work there are happy. Are there exceptions? Of course there are. Welcome to the human race. But at the end of the day, I love that. And so I love to see people that operate well, but pay attention to people because people are the ones that operate well. And therefore, if you get the right people with the right attitude, you are going to get your processes reinforced and you're going to win versus your competition. Yeah, I love uh the quick trip uh, chicken uh, taquitos, unbelievable. Very, very big fan of mine. I love them. Uh, and then I actually bring a change of clothes in my car or Costco so I can go around the sampling bins twice now. I'm joking about that, everyone. Uh, <laughs> you know, but I, I will say the Southwest, you know, the Herb Kelleher story, how he started on the napkin and all that. And, you know, Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, I think was the, the three uh, points. You know, the point-to-point system that they started that hurt them during their technology issues. But something you said about P&G, and I always remembered this about Southwest. Southwest didn't want anybody from Delta, United, uh, you know, uh, American, whatever other airlines. They they wanted to teach them, just like the P&G people, wanted to teach them the Southwest way. You know, they didn't, they didn't care. And I, uh, I think you have the similar philosophy, like, you know, you don't need to know telecom to be a great leader and add value and profit and customer satisfaction to sprint customers and, and employees. Um, Cause they, everybody had to learn telecom at one point. So just cause you yeah. came to, from P and G and we're in the, you know, a shitty business with Metamucil didn't mean, didn't mean you couldn't learn another industry which i i find it crazy and i think ad agencies are they're just known for like you have to have ad agency experience to work for an ad agency i'm like why (laughs) it makes no sense i i i learned that in spades by growing up at procter and gamble because about every 18 months they move categories you work on toothpaste and then you work on mouthwash and then you work on um uh laxative business and they, they don't think twice about moving you. The theory is if, if you're good and you're an absorber and you really understand what you need to do over the first three or four months that you're in a new business, you'll learn the category. You'll learn the competitors, the distribution strategies they have. You'll learn their price points and you got all that. What they're, what P&G wants to do is they want you to bring your skill set to the new job and the new category so that you can solve problems maybe in a different way, maybe better. So that what they want to do is they want your communication skills. They want your problem solving. They want your strategic thinking. And they, they don't really give a damn whether you work in the category or not. And, you know, I went from being the brand manager of Metamucil to being a director of marketing for a, a telecom telecommunications company because Sprint looked at it and said, this guy has a skill set that we can use in order to uh, help us win. And I love that thinking. I never worry about specific industry or company experience when hiring. I look for skill sets and attitude and grit. Yeah. Um, did You work directly for George Rodriguez, right? 
I did. He was uh, my hiring uh, vice president when I came into Sprint in 1992. Yeah, George, he was a anti, not anti, he was the antithesis of type A. He was very, he was very laid back, <laughs> which was good. George was a good guy. Hey, talk a little bit about, I love your exercise, the, the seven words. So talk a little bit about that. Uh, this is fascinating. This is very Harry Campbell because it's dumb, damn simple, but it's effective. When I showed up at Procter & Gamble in 1985, all they did was talk about brands. P&G, you're hard-pressed to find P&G on a label. It's a manufacturer. It's not a brand. They sell Secret, Tide, Charmin, Crest. They tell, sell brands. And what they want is they want brands that are enduring and stand for something. So when you go and if if you're at a store and you're you're at the category and you pick it, you want to have your brand stand for something. And I realized at that point that I had a brand. Now, I realized I had a personal brand and I loved the fact that I came up with this. I never trademarked it. I never did anything with it. And I blew it because I was on this game early. And I came to the conclusion that my personal brand was the four words that the world uses to describe me. I quickly changed to seven because four was too easy. And I decided it was seven. And you need to find it out anonymously what the world thinks. So you try to ask eight or 10 people and get seven words from each of those anonymously. And you find out that uh, there's groupings of words that people use to describe you. And you might not have even known it. And I love the exercise because it helps you understand the gap between what you think your brand is and what you think people uh, attribute to you with regard to your uh, positive virtues and or your negatives and the gap between what they really do. And so I always say it doesn't, the, the seven words used to describe you don't really matter. It is the gap between what you think the words are and what the world has. If Southwest Airlines thinks they're a luxury airliner, we have a problem. We've got a huge gap between what is reality and what they think it is. Same thing with a person. If you think you're a strategic genius that's an excellent communicator and the people that work for you think you're a micromanaging ninny that can't get out of its own way with regard to public speaking, that's a problem. In my first book on Gabriel Leadership, I talked about leading yourself being the foundation of success with regard to business. And to lead yourself, you need to understand your personal brand. So on my website, harryscampbell.com, there's a little tool at the top that calls seven words. It helps take you through the exercise of finding out anonymously what the world thinks of you and what your brand is. It costs nothing. It's free. If you want to do it, go do it. Just don't complain to me if you don't like your words. But it's one of the most powerful things that I've done. I did it and I wrote it down in the book in 2012. I've been using it for 30 years, maybe 40 years, personal brand. But I love it because it is a great start for people to understand who they are and then start to realize why other people react to them, maybe why they didn't get a job. It may be one of those most important factors of all for your career success is to understand your personal brand. And as a marketer that grew up at Procter & Gamble, I get it, I believe it, and I need to do it because people have brands also. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, I'll never forget, you told me about it, but I didn't go to your website. I don't know if you even had one at the time, but and I remember I next time we met, I told you about my results and I said, yeah, I, 
I actually surveyed 112 people on SurveyMonkey. And you were like, 112? I recommend five to 10. You like couldn't believe it. I said, yeah. I said, half the people responded and half of those uh, gave me the word, you know, uh, I'm smart. So smart was one of my words. And you just looked at me deadpan and you said, well, the other half thinks you're dumb. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> There's my humor that sometimes gets in my way. It's all good. It's all good. You got to laugh at yourself. Um, I, in terms of your kind of leadership journey, and I don't know if you want to compartmentalize this to your early leadership and later when you're managing, you know, uh, organizations of two to 4,000 people, but kind of what were your, some of the biggest challenges leadership wise that you had to learn? Um, um I love it. Great question that uh, I don't think I've ever gotten at that form before, which is one of the reasons why I love these uh, podcasts. Uh, early on, my biggest problem is very, very easy to identify. I was allowing my people pleasing to slop over into the world of me managing. So my first 10 years, if you worked for me and you were mediocre, if you were bad, it was easy for me to deal with. But if you were mediocre, what I did was I tried to do your work. I tried to lift your B minus work, C plus work up into the A minus category. And so I was doing a lot of grunting and groaning and helping of people because I wanted them to like me, but I knew the work needed to be done. That was not good. I wish I'd have changed it sooner. I didn't, but I needed to work through that because it was my personality trait. So my early leadership was uh, messed up a little by that. I got over it and uh, got by it. And thank goodness I did because it would have been debilitating with regard to my career. The middle part of my career is different. I started uh, getting groups of people where every one of the people in my group were um, older than me. And that was an interesting dynamic that I had to manage. And what I realized was just to have to be me to let them know, I don't know what you do. I don't know um, how you do it. I'm never going to pretend to be better at what you do than you than um, you are. What I need you to understand is I play a role here in the aggregate of pulling information together, making longer term decisions and are helping you with your career. And so I had to win over some very uh, um, skeptical employees that had 10 to 15 extra years of work experience on me, and I was their boss. That was an extraordinarily important time frame to go through. It was very humbling, but it was also an incredible learning experience to go through that and really realize that your positional power can matter, but on a day-to-day basis, if you don't handle it well, it will come back and bite you. Then the third phase that I went through where I had huge groups of people and I was older, maybe I was 45. No one really cares whether they're older or younger than you when you're 45 because you're already old to them anyway, so it doesn't matter. I got to the point where I, I needed to understand how to influence, inspire, and lead huge groups. So let's say it's got 4,000 people. A vast majority of those people are in call centers around the United States in C&D markets like Tarboro, North Carolina or Medford, Oregon. They make the the people on the phones out there make $13, $14 an hour, but they get Fortune 500 benefits and most of them love their job. It's one of the best jobs you can get in a market like that, but they don't care what Kansas City thinks. 
And so what I needed to do was come up with a way for them to listen and care to our quarterly conference calls, to to prioritize what I need them to work on and to go away and be motivated by it. I will tell you, that was an interesting realization that I came to. And I decided to let my personality drive that. So I unleashed a whole lot of cussing on most of these quarterly calls. Now, I have three kids, so I know which words you can say and which words you can't. So I was doing social cussing, but still people loved it. I made fun of myself regularly and in ways that didn't make people uncomfortable, but made them pay attention. And um, I said all sorts of strange and different things occasionally. And so they felt like they needed to lean forward in their seat because they weren't sure what was coming next. I would get them engaged with me. And then at the end, I would say, okay, all that aside, there are three priorities we have for the quarter, and this is what they are. And I would lay them out because they were engaged and they were paying attention. They remembered. And we actually did a little bit of mother-in-law research by going next day to some of the call centers and saying, what are the three priorities Harry laid out for you and for the org for the next quarter. And a vast majority of the people remembered them. And at that point, I realized you got to capture their hearts and minds. You got to get them inspired and engaged. And if you do, they will remember, they will care, and they will do what you need them to do in a way that's amazing from their standpoint. And so it worked that way. That was my last level of leadership, but which, by the way, led directly to public speaking that I'm in, keynote and motivational speaking, because there's no, it's no different to try to, it's how I learned to do it, which was when I had those huge groups of people that were assembled all over the United States. Yeah. I mean, obviously I've, I've, I've heard you and seen you speak and I think, you know, uh, again, I'm, I'm referencing Seth Godin, uh, who I, uh, even though we've never met, I consider him a mentor of mine also. I think he's brilliant. Uh, but I remember he, he said, nobody remembers a bullet on the PowerPoint slide. And I think, you know, you're, your storytelling style is just, you know, this is so spot on because people remember stories. They don't remember bullets on a PowerPoint. So I think that's uh, your style is very engaging. So I, uh, you, you need a little more energy and passion in your speeches. But other than that, that's the only <laughs> feedback I have. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> you know, I'm kidding. Um yeah, I know you're a big Bobby Knight uh, fan. I I believe you still are. I don't know, um, but I you re, you reminded me of um, my daughter was born on February 23rd, and I'm in the hospital, and you know what February 23rd in Indiana Hoosier history stands for, right? So February sure 23rd, so, 1985, the chair goes across the court, and I believe you were at the game. Well, she, uh, I was at the game with three of my best friends from uh, business school uh, because I was in uh, getting my MBA at in, in in Bloomington at the time. Yeah. Was your daughter actually born on that year? No, no, not on the, no. So, but I was watching ESPN in the hospital and, you know, since it was, and I think Indiana was playing, I don't know, they, you know, they, they read, you know, they did a little segment on <laughs> the the chair throwing. So it was, it was pretty funny. It was a defining moment in my life is what I like to say, because uh, I was there and um, it mattered to me. Yeah. You know, so, I, you know, I, I was a big Bobby Knight fan, uh, just from a leadership um, perspective. I mean, obviously he did things that were, you know, was old school, you know, kind of Vince Lombardi, 
Woody Hayes type, uh, I'll say. I'm not, uh, I'm a big Vince Lombardi fan, but um, do you think, um, like, if he started now in, in coaching, would he be as successful? No. He was um, perfectly timed for when he was the coach at Indiana. There were, uh, there was very little humor involved. It was much more uh, crack the whip, make it happen, punishment oriented with regard to running or doing stairs in a stadium or something. And um, I would say even probably his last five to seven years lopped over into the time when uh, his style of coaching was going out quickly. And I think that affected his ability to get players to come in and um, put up with the environment. I I love him as a coach and a teacher, and he was a wildly successful coach. But at the end of the day, I did not like the way he treated people. Yeah. But I know a lot of his former players loved him. They, you know, just like a lot of the former Packers loved Lombardi. Um, you know, it, Henry Jordan, who used to play, I, w- I loved sports and I, I read instant replay by Jerry Kramer like seven times when I was whatever, t- 14 years old. But anyhow, so Harry, no one knows Henry Jordan except for, you know, big Packer fans. But anyhow, he said, Lombardi treats us all the same, like dogs, you know, so, <laughs> but they all loved him. Like, you know, they would do anything for the guy. And I think mo- a lot of those former players, Knights former players would say the same thing, but it, it you know, I don't know. I mean, he taught him more than basketball, right? Which most great coaches do, mm. but. That's true. Uh, Mike Krzyzewski was uh, Bobby Knight's point guard when Knight was a head coach at uh, West Point, And he was an assistant coach at Indiana. And what I would say is Mike Krzyzewski is a better example of someone that I would uh, uh, admire and emulate because he has a lot of the teaching, the mentoring and the communication skills that Knight had that were good, but he didn't have that, um, uh, kind of personality trait that is cringeable that Knight had. And what Bobby Knight has was he didn't care what people thought of him. And if you don't care what people think of of you, you, um, I believe, get yourself off the rails way more often than you should. And Krzyzewski does not do that. Right. And so I'm very impressed by him. And my wife's a Duke grad, so it works out really well. There you go. Yeah, actually, uh, just a quick story. I, I grew up about 30, 25, 30 minutes from West Point. So I, my brother... And uh, his friend and his friend's son, we used to go to watch the West Point games, and Shashevsky uh, was the coach there. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. And it was, nobody went to the West Point games. Like, you know, I'm sitting right by Shashevsky. You know, he was 20, whatever, four, maybe. I don't even know how old he was, but, you know, obviously he was before he went. Just a second. Hanging on my wall here in my basement. <laughs> Love it. Uh, Harry's showing a, a picture of uh, Bobby Knight as a coach of West Point and his point guard, Mike Krzyzewski. How does he think Krzyzewski kept his hair pitch black in, into the 70s? I'm guessing <laughs> that uh, it was not uh, um, without effort. <laughs> oh, God. Um you mentioned somebody I hadn't thought about in a while, not on this call, but uh, some other show you did, uh, interview show. I, uh, Tom Wigman, and I, Tom, I never had. I was at BSG and PCS. Uh, I think when Tom came, uh, so I didn't get a chance to work for his leadership. But 
I, myself, Mark Vobrel uh, of CSG and Steve McLean of CSG back in the day, we started a database marketing uh, forum uh, with all the all the different divisions of Sprint that was trying to do anything from a analytical standpoint and predictive modeling and reporting and CRM. And Tom, uh, be, uh, Mark Vobrel got Tom to be our keynote speaker. And I still remember him. He no notes, no anything. He's up there. He gave a, like a whole state of telecom and then took it all the way down to Sprint and what we were trying to do. And he's up there. He's sweating. <laughs> but I'm telling you, he was magical. Like, I, I was like, I'm like, I was blown away. I just thought, and I think, you know, you would consider him a, a great boss of yours or mentor. I don't know, but I'd love to hear any great Tom stories. Um, the answer to that is yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> Wigman was one of my favorite bosses. He was one of my best bosses, and I consider him a mentor. I've gone to both of his uh, kids' weddings. Boy, they were a party. Woo! <laughs> um, the reason why I liked him so much was, first of all, he was dang smart. And so he really absorbed well and put pieces together. But at the same time, he had a side of him that uh, treated people so extraordinarily well that I kind of recognize it in myself with regard to the people pleasing. It can be a little conflicting internally, but it comes out so well externally because if you really, really, really care about people and treat them well, they're going to be attracted to working in your organization. Tom was that way. He had those blue pins that he had. They were trademark Tom Wigman, and he would constantly take notes and he would formulate the ability to to um, help people understand why we're here and what's going to happen and where we're going next. And he was just brilliant. I loved working with him and, in fact, do consider him a mentor and just was communicating with him yesterday. That's great. Yeah, I, he was uh, fantastic. Um by the way, he grew up at Eminem Mars, which had right. a, 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 and he had a very senior job there. I think he might have even worked for one of the two brothers that owned the business because it's a private company, um, one of the largest private companies in the world. And he learned an incredible amount about marketing there because they were very, very much students of marketing and positioning and messaging and um, uh, wildly successful as a result of it. So you talked about party. Uh, you don't have to reveal names, but Sprint was a little bit of a crazy place at times. Like crazy stuff happened, and you know, I, you know, I want this to be a fun show. So, what are some of the crazy stories that you could share that happened uh, under your leadership or or amongst your peers uh, in terms of uh, at Sprint or any other company that were kind of fun to, to share? Oh, I'm, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to plead the fifth on that. <laughs> I, I will tell you, though, that um, the one thing I will say is we had the budget to spend on people per, with regard to kickoffs that were fun. And those things tended to be a blast because you're trying to get uh, – Thousands of people energized and motivated. And we also had the money to spend on president's clubs. So if you were one of the top 3% of the salespeople, you got to bring your plus one and you got to go to Hawaii or Cayman or um, Mexico. And those were a blast because you got the chance to see wildly successful people 
letting their hair down a little bit and having fun and wow with the stories abound, but we're not going to go there. Yeah. If only those uh, resort hot tubs could talk, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Uh, um, Harry, I know you do a lot for uh, charity. You've written three books and with your speaking engagements and uh, talk about Head for the Cure, why it's uh, important to you. Um, Be glad to. In uh, 2004, my wife was diagnosed with an inoperable malignant brain tumor. She did have a craniotomy out in San Francisco to try to remove it, but they were not able to. So they stapled her up and um, she got radiation. She's been living with that since. I I got a little bit worn out supporting her with words. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Those words. And so in 2011, I started a journey of writing a book so I could give speeches and I could start to raise some money for charity, particularly for brain cancer research. I published the first book, Get Real Leadership, in 2012. I've done two since then, one in 16 on culture and one in 20 on mindset. And I give a I and I do keynote speeches. I do about 20 or 25 keynote speeches a year. Um, I give 100% of my gross speaking fees to Head for the Cure, which is a Kansas City-based organization trying to find a cure for uh, brain cancer. And I also give 100% of my book proceeds. As of yesterday, I have raised $573,000 from those two ventures. I um, am not famous, so if you're going to have Sarah Palin or Lou Holtz or something like that give a speech, you're not going to put me in the decision set. But um, I have figured out because of the jobs I've been in, how to motivate, inspire, and engage people. And I'm damn good at it. So roughly four to $7,000 for a keynote speech, I get a chance to um, coach and mentor and tell stories about what I think is very important with regard to leadership. The charity aspect of my speaking is just the end result. I get money and I give it away. What I'm doing with my speeches is trying to pass on some of my lessons and learnings via stories so that people understand how I think they can be more successful by operating differently. And I I tell you, it's fun. I'm pondering my fourth book. Um, I'm still speaking away. I've got a speech next Thursday and a couple of them lined up like in Grand Rapids, Michigan and and um, Tulsa, Oklahoma in the next few months. And um, I don't intend to stop now because I love doing it. Public speaking is something that um, as a skill set, it's one that I keep honing and getting better at, and I love it. But it also helps me support a very important uh, charity, Head for the Cure, with regard to brain cancer research. Yeah, I know it's phenomenal. And uh, actually, when uh, Robin and I first were together, uh, we did the Head for the Cure in Corporate Woods. And um, you and Chris were, were running it. It's the only time Robin and I have run together. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, you've been involved in it so long. Uh, Matt Anthony, our friend, uh, started because his brother, you know, passed and just it's it's done amazing things, Head for the Cure. So that's um phenomenal thank you for that oh you're um, welcome and you know it's it's amazing that chris is still you know 
I know she's not without her challenges, but it's been an amazing story. Um, so we'll uh, kind of wrap up a little bit, but I'd like to ask you, since I think you're, uh, uh, you were CEO, the first uh, non-medical CEO at Dury Vision uh, for about five years, was it? Yes. Five years. So you retired there, or I should say left there in what, 18, 19? The end of 18. End of 18. So um, do you miss leading people? Not really. <laughs> um, I thought I would miss it. I thought I would miss it more than I do. But after decades and decades, you kind of feel like it's run its course. I'm I'm at a new chapter now. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to storytell, engage and inspire people through my speeches. And so I think if I wanted to change my answer and say, yes, I do miss it. But what I do is I get to give speeches that lead people. They happen to be point in time. Maybe it's a couple of hours. Maybe it's a speech plus workshop or breakouts. But I get to do that. I just do it in a different form. And um, it's a form that I love standing in front of somewhere between 100 and 1,000 people and trying to figure out how to simplify my message how to make sure that people are paying attention, they're engaged, they believe me, and they put into action um, some things that I think can make a huge difference with regard to their success and the success of the business. And that just gets me jacked up, Jeff. I love doing it. So would you say that's your kind of new sense of purpose after leaving corporate America? Is, is, is it that or is it something else? Um, it, actually, I have three pieces uh, with regard to the, my sense of purpose. And um, I use that term very specifically because when Chris knew that I was going to retire from Dairy Vision, so that was four years ago, four years and a couple of weeks, I didn't think I was going to go back and run anything else. So I thought, okay, you're W2 retired. What are you going to do? What's your? And she kept saying, as long as you have a sense of purpose, you'll be fine. And I do. And the sense of purpose really has to do with um, passing on learnings and um, understandings and stories that make a difference with regard to people and businesses. And so what I do is we, we do investing. Some of it's angel investing. Some of it's small business investing. And we do that because we bet on people. We think people that have a good idea, we'd like to be involved with them and engage with them. So we do that. It's not a full-time job, but it's very fun. And we have four or five companies that we're involved with in Kansas City. The other thing I do is I do mentoring and coaching, but I'm going to laugh about this one. And you're going to think this is very hairy. I don't have any interest in taking your to-dos. So I will get together with you, you being a generic you. And every couple of months, we'll spend an hour, hour and a half. You got issues with your business. I'd love to share with you why, what I think about them or how you might solve them or give you some different specific direction. That coaching and mentoring, I love it. But when I get up and walk away from the table, I don't want to take your to-dos with me. So I don't market it. I don't charge any money and I don't do to-dos. And so I have one of the most robust, gratis, <laughs> coaching and mentoring businesses you can imagine because I love doing it, but I don't want to turn it into a business. And so when you say you don't take any of uh, the person's to do is you, you leave the meeting and you're done. Right? I'm done. Yeah. You're until not going gonna... to until the next time we meet. Yes, yeah. I'm done. Okay. And yeah, um, the the beautiful thing is when I don't charge anything, I'm, I'm uh, allowed to do that. 
And then, so I've talked about investing and I've talked about mentoring and coaching. And third thing is the speaking. And the speaking is what I love, as you said, because I'm inspiring, but I'm also leading. And I like the, I, I like the way that's framed, but also I'm helping head for the cure and showing my love for my wife and trying to find a, uh, a cure for this dreaded disease. So when you cobble all those together, what I have is I have a very fun and interesting life, but it's just completely different than when I was running big groups at Sprint or even running DuraVision for five years. Yeah. I mean, so I'm, I don't, I think you named three things at least maybe four, but it's like the trifecta. You're just, so win, 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 win for everything that you're doing. So that's phenomenal. Yes. Um, Last question. I, I'm hoping some uh, younger viewers uh, tune in, and I'm always very empathetic uh, about any job seeker, but really empathetic for people graduating from college uh, and, and ready to end the, uh, enter the workforce. What, so what advice would you have for an upcoming recent college graduate about their pro professional career? I'm going to pull a brilliant move. I'm going to go straight to my book, Get Real Mindset, that I published in 2020. And I'm going to answer the question directly with that and tell people if you can find it on Amazon or on Kindle for 10 bucks, it's worth it. Here's what I would say if you're coming out of school. Three things very sp specifically with regard to mindset. Be an attractor. Be one of the people that people want to be around. Be someone that people wants to spend time with and they want to be. If you do that, the opposite of being a repeller, what happens is you get the opportunity to choose your friends. You will learn more. You'll be engaged. You'll you'll be vulnerable. You'll you'll share info. You'll swap stories, and you'll be better off. So be an attractor. Think about what it means to be an attractor in a way that's healthy and productive. Second of all, in my book, I talk about embracing the crookedness of life. By the way, have a plan, but realize that tomorrow the plan could go awry. You might just have a flat tire and miss a meeting or something may happen health-wise. I have no idea. But you don't just think about the idea that the plan is going to go awry. Embrace the change and crookedness because the people that embrace change and have resilience and grit win in life and business. And then the third one is live to learn. Find out podcasts that you can learn from, read, talk to people, engage with people that are not in your own echo chamber. They're different than you and pay attention to them and learn from them. You don't necessarily have to uh, to take their beliefs, but you need to understand where they're coming from and why and how, because that expansion of your mind enables you to move forward again and again and have the potential to be a much better person, a better business person and a winner. Great advice. Uh, I, I love it. I, I have a great podcast for people to learn. That's uh, the Corporate Couch, uh, hosted by Jeff Palaccio. Harry, thank you so much for being a guest today. Um, I really appreciate you, and uh, thank you for uh, helping me be a better leader. Um, you are very welcome. I am honored to be one of the first in your podcast series, and. Um, I really, really treasure our relationship. I've known you for 30 years. I've thought nothing but positive things about you over those 30 years because you have delivered in ways that I can't even possibly imagine. You've led people and you've helped us win in the business world. And I thank you for that. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Harry. Have a great afternoon. What a fantastic episode with Harry Campbell. 
just the leadership he has shown throughout the years and one of the most authentic leaders I have ever experienced. Uh, and I love that he was an East Asian history major in college, but just a phenomenal person. Joe, you knew Harry a little bit at Sprint. What was your biggest surprise? One of the things I'd tell you that struck me was the fact that Harry could be such an incredible leader and executive for his entire career. And then at the very end of the career, and yeah, I was kind of thrust upon him by the situation with his wife, but at the end of the career, he makes a decision and says, you know, I'm going to give back to society. And so um, I'm going to work for the Head for the Cure Foundation and give all of his profits to that organization. It's just a great testimony of how executives can say, I've gotten so much out of life and so much out of business, I've got to give some of it back at the end of my life. And uh, I love that about him here. I didn't know that about him before then. Yeah, I knew him at Sprint, but uh, I had no idea that he had all that in him at the time. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, to have donated, I believe it's over $573,000 is just incredible. I mean, just a, a genuine, authentic uh, giving person. So, Joe, any uh, last thoughts on leadership? You know, I'm always reminded of the great words of the great Michael Scott. When he said, make friends first, make sales second, make love third, in no particular order. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.